0: Well, good morning, church. Uh, I want to extend a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us, and we pray that God's Spirit will touch and bless you this day. Today is the day of Pentecost, and and this is the day that the church celebrates the gift of the Holy Spirit, the the birthday of the church. We're going to talk a little bit about that in the message. In preparation for this message, I believe the Holy Spirit is at work all the time, always leading each of us, including me. And uh, I stumbled across an article written back in the 50s uh, from a magazine that was, back in the 50s, a significant uh, uh, magazine for the Christian church movement of which this congregation uh, has historically been a part. And uh, the uh, author of the article was lamenting, was, was concerned about uh, how back in the 20s and the 30s, uh, the day of Pentecost was such a significant day uh, for Christian churches uh, throughout North America. As a matter of fact, uh, it was not unusual back then for attendance on the day of Pentecost to exceed that of Easter. There'd be more people at church, at Christian churches, uh, on the day of Pentecost than throughout Easter, so much so that it became an evangelistic holiday. Uh, for the church a tremendous evangelistic effort and uh, this author writing in the 50s was upset that uh, you know it wasn't as big of a deal as it had been and of course unfortunately today not only in Christian churches throughout uh, our movement in North America but also in many churches um, the day of Pentecost is a is a day what is that all about and why is that important so I want to share that, uh, share a little bit with you about that today. Uh, my uh, uh, text for this morning is Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> I wouldn't, pardon my, my throat, I'm losing my voice and don't you dare say amen, but uh, <laughs> Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. It's a long text, I'm going to be reading 21 verses, but uh, I, hope, uh, I hope you'll see the power of it as we get into it. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, and none of us are surprised that it was Peter, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. You know, we human beings are an interesting lot, aren't we? I mean, if there is any reason that we can find to disagree and argue, we will find it. And since Christians are made up of human beings, that also is a big part of what it means to be in the life of the church. One of the larger debates among Christians is whether or not the authority upon which we base our faith is rooted in Scripture alone, in Scripture and tradition, or in some other arrangement of things like reason and experience. And of course, we all know that the devil is in the details. For example, some Christians say that the holidays that are popularly celebrated in the church do not have any biblical mandate. That is, is that there's no text in the Bible that says that we have to celebrate annually holidays like Christmas and Easter. I mean, it's true, they're not explicitly commanded in the New Testament, However, we do have the church practicing in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, the gathering on the first day of the week. That is the day of Christ's resurrection. That is as the first century church wasn't just celebrating Easter once a year, they were celebrating Easter once a week. We also have Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 11, verse 2, when he actually says these words, now I commend you because you remember me in everything, are you ready, and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. Hmm. There are even some Christians who say that the only holidays that we should celebrate are those that have been celebrated by our Jewish forebears. We often call these folks Messianic Christians or Christians that seek to live in the customs and life and celebrations of our Jewish Uh, uh, forebears, forefathers, and foremothers. There's a lot of discussion about how appropriate that is, and you and I could sit with them and others like them and even folks outside of the church and offer them all day long a reasoned explanation for certain traditions, but you and I also know that reasoned explanations are generally not persuasive to people who already think they know it all. So, with that... Let me say to you that today is a day that you have come to church on perhaps the best day of the year. Because today, the day of Pentecost, is not only a Christian celebration, it is also a Jewish celebration. So we are celebrating today, albeit for a different reason, the same holiday with the same name. Let's talk a little bit about Pentecost this morning. First of all, Pentecost remembers both the gift of the law and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, to our Jewish forebears, the day of Pentecost <clears throat> was a word that was taken from the Greek word Day, And it was originally, and you can go back into your Old Testament and see this, the original name for this holiday for the Jews was the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks began exactly 50 days after the Passover. And the word Day literally means 50th. Just like the Jews, we Christians also celebrate this as the 50th day. But for us, it's the 50th day after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This should not come to us as any surprise, this day, this day of Pentecost. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about this day frequently and significantly in all of the Gospels. In John chapter 7, verse 39, if you're taking notes, you might want to write these down and you can go back and look at them a little bit later today or this week. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, they can come to him. And he will give them drink. And then John picks up after he records Jesus saying that, and John interprets that by saying, quote, Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Last Sunday, if you were here, we celebrated Ascension Sunday, which is the day we celebrate the glorification of Jesus Christ. The day that he ascended and took his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. And now that Jesus has been glorified, we have been prepared. We are ready. All things have been set in place for us now to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, 16, just a little bit after Jesus has said this, Jesus says this time to his disciples, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Helper. Who will be with you forever. One chapter later, after that, in chapter 15, verse 26 of John, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness with me. For the Jews, as they celebrated the 50th day after the Passover, they remembered the gift of the law given to the hebrew people for the christians we gather on the 50th day after the resurrection to celebrate and remember the gift of the holy spirit now the great protestant reformer martin luther said that in the christian faith two things must always be present the law and the gospel and Christian preaching, there must always be the good news which follows the bad news. You would probably understand that when we talk about the Christian faith, we begin with this idea that under the law, we have all been condemned. But because of Jesus Christ, we have all been set free. You see, Pentecost, the day you've come to church It's the perfect combination of Jewish and Christian tradition celebrating the gift of the law and the gift of the spirit. Pentecost is also the birthday of the church. Now, the Greek word for church is actually the word ekklesia. Let's say it together. Ekklesia. One more time. Ekklesia. See, now you've got something to talk about at your next dinner party. You'll look like you're really intelligent. The word ecclesia literally means the assembly or the gathering. And yet, when this assembly gathers, when you decided to come to this place for this gathering, it is different than when you gather for a Rockies game, or at least it should be. I mean, there are some obvious differences, like the language that's used and the kind of beverages that they serve versus the kind that we serve. But this assembly that you have come to today is different because this assembly is powered by the Holy Spirit. There's a great passage in the Gospel of Matthew, verses 18 and 20, that says, You've said it probably multiple times in multiple situations, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And there's a lot of folks that read this text and they say, Wherever two or three of us are gathered, that's a good thing. And that's not really the focus or the point. The point isn't that two or three of us are gathered. The point is, is why we're gathered, or more accurately, in whose name we are gathered. You see, the point is when two or three are gathered in his name. So so if you go to Rocky's game and you say, this is like church, unless you're gathered in the name of Jesus, it's not church. Sorry. You, You see, When we think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he actually uses this phrase, I will build my church. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus Christ sovereignly called each of you to this place for this purpose. Jesus is not surprised that you're here today. Jesus is not surprised that we have come together in his name today. Jesus is the one who said, I want this person and this person who has this gift and that gift to gather to be my church. You see, when the word church is used, it specifically refers to a gathering like this. A gathering of people who've gathered in the name of Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, each of us having our lives having been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Your friends who are Buddhists, they don't go to a Buddhist church. Your friends who are Muslim, they don't go to a Muslim church. Hindus don't go to a Hindu church. When the word church is used, it explicitly refers to a spirit-filled community of spirit-filled Christians. When when, when we hear the church gathered, uh, that is like declaring to the powers of darkness, you better be careful because the church with its spirit transformed by the spirit has gathered and is prepared to make a difference in the world. There's also an interesting nuance in that word church that's found in the Bible that because we're reading it in English, we don't always catch catch the, the nuance. And this is it. So, in the time of Jesus, most folks spoke a language called Aramaic. And Aramaic is a language that's really a mixture of a bunch of different languages that had come into the what is Israel? You know, Israel went through a series of being conquered, liberated, and conquered again. And, And so the language that they spoke was a compilation of all of those influences. And at the time of Jesus, Aramaic was essentially a language that was made up of predominantly Hebrew and Greek. So when you put Hebrew and Greek together, you get this Aramaic kind of thing. But most people, if not all people, generally read Greek. It was the predominant language of the, of the culture, of the community. And because people read Greek, many of them could not read Hebrew. And so the Jewish rabbis got together... And they translated the Hebrew Scriptures, what you and I call the Old Testament, into Greek. And that Bible, that translation is called the Septuagint. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is quoted uh, in the Gospels, quoting the Hebrew Scriptures, he's really quoting the Septuagint, the Greek translation. When Paul is referring to prophecies in the Old Testament, he's literally writing down the Greek version of the Old Testament. This Greek translation is significantly important. Now, why did I set that up? Because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word ecclesia, the word church, is used 136 times. Now, to help you understand that, it's only used in the New Testament 114 times. The word church is used more in the Greek translation of the Old Testament than it is in our New Testament. And in almost every case, and I'm reasonably sure it is every case, but just want to give myself some room because I know you all are going to Google this. (laughs) In every case, almost every case, that word is used to uh, uh, to, to reference to a phrase, something like this, the people of God the assembly of Israel, the nation of Israel. That is, is when the church is used, it is intentionally talking about God's people. So you need to think about that. The next time somebody says, where do you worship? And you say, South Suburban Christian Church. You see, the most important word in that whole response is the word church. And the phrase, first Presbyterian, church, church is the most important. And the phrase Main Street Methodist church, the word church is what is most important. When we claim the name church, what we are claiming is that we are the people of God. We are saying to the world when we say we are a part of the church that we are committed to submitting ourselves. Now, that's a word we don't hear a lot nowadays, isn't it? submitting ourselves and our assembly to the authority of the Holy Spirit. When you walked into these doors and took your place in this assembly, you were saying, I am not my own, and this church is not my church. We belong to Christ, and this, we, are his. Filled by His Spirit. And if we confess the triune God, if we believe that God exists in three persons equally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are filled with the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit, we, are you ready? We are God present. Which is why the New Testament talks about us as the body of Christ. When we're here together together, spirit-filled people in a spirit-filled assembly, Jesus is here. And when we go out into the world, we are Christ to the world. What does that mean? That in this place, in this assembly, a part of this gathering, there is no room for divided loyalty. There's no room here for power struggles. There's no room for the jockeying of positions for prestige and prominence as if we had any power of our own, we are here submitting ourselves to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? That means that today, on Pentecost Sunday, that every time the church gathers, that every time the church goes forth, it is a powerful reminder of the church's mission to preach. Now, I know in our culture that word preach can have a negative term. Don't be preaching at me. Preaching is a good thing. Preaching is a life-fulfilling thing. The text I read is from Acts chapter 2. I I hope you'll turn there again with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. I want you to see something that was powerful here. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what's the next phrase? and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the church hasn't always agreed about what this passage means, so let's run through this real quickly so you can have the background. There there are some Christians who believe that the gift of tongues is the gift of a prayer language, like you would see in the Pentecostal church and the charismatic churches, and it's true. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, when he says that although I speak of the, uh, with tongues of angels and of men, but have not love. So I'm not criticizing any of you who happen to have that particular gift and use it according to the Scriptures. But I don't think that it is that particular gift of tongues that is being described here in Acts chapter 2, and, and I want to give you a reason why. Look with me at verse 7. We read, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Perga, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya. You didn't think I could do all those, did you? (laughs) You, You see, these folks that were preaching were Galileans. They only understood their language. But when they spoke to the multitudes that had gathered because they had heard the rushing wind and, and the power of the Holy Spirit, when, when, when the disciples, when the apostles began to preach and the only language that they knew, the folks who were there were hearing that sermon, that message, in a tongue, in a language that they understood. And why? Why is it? That the very first gift given to the church on the day of Pentecost was the ability to speak in a language that they had no knowledge of so that folks would know the mighty works of God. That is, once the Holy Spirit had come upon the believers, nothing could prevent them from preaching the gospel, especially something as insignificant as not knowing a language. This is the power of Pentecost the call to preach, the call to proclaim. And finally, the Holy Spirit accomplishes miracles through preaching. Would you turn with me? You don't need to go to another book. Just turn to chapter 6 in the book of Acts. Chapter 6 in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 is an introduction to the first and oldest office of the church. And I think it's especially significant today as You witnessed the installation and anointing of the new leaders of this congregation. Among some of them gathered were those who were called to the office of deacon. And here in Acts chapter 6, we have the establishment of the office of deacon. Look with me at verse 1. Uh, Something I'm going to read to you that none of you will believe can actually be in the Bible. Here it is. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint. Now, I know y'all thought that complaints just happened in today's church, but the church has been complaining from the very beginning. What was the complaint? The Hellenists were complaining that they were not receiving a fair distribution or as fair of a distribution as the Hebrews. Now, now to get this, you got to understand who the Hellenists and The Hebrews are. The Hellenists, uh, scholars do argue a little bit over this, but essentially you'll get the picture. Uh, Hellenists were either uh, Greeks who had become Christians, or according to the majority of scholars, they were Jews who had abandoned their heritage of Jewishness and had accepted the Greek culture as their own. So so they didn't know Hebrew, they didn't know their language, they didn't know their traditions. They were ethnically Jewish, but they were not culturally Jewish. They had become uh, uh, integrated into the Greek culture and the Roman culture, and they had become Christians, and so they had come back into the faith community. The Hebrews are Christians who are ethnically Jewish. That is, is that these are potentially Christians who had been very active Uh, faithful, observant Jews, followed all the laws, dietary laws, holidays, went to the temple, and then they became Christians. To bring it up to our day, you could think of it this way. The Hellenists are the outsiders and the Hebrews are the insiders. And I know that it seems strange to you because that never happens today, But what was happening is is the new folks were saying, hey, we're not being fully accepted into this community of faith. But the folks over there who were a part of your all's family and traditions for years and years, they're getting more attention than we are. Now, you need to see this. It's a little unsettling when you first read it. The apostles receive this complaint and they decide that this dispute is big enough to cause them to be distracted from their primary biblically ordained job. That is, as they said, this is too important. We're being distracted from preaching the Word of God. That sounds kind of bad. But hear it this way. The apostles also recognized that it was a serious enough issue that they established the first and now the oldest office in the church to take care of the problem. The deacons were called to settle the disputes in the church. Now, I know that everybody was made a deacon today was like, What? I didn't know I signed up for that. The apostles go on and they say this in verse 3. They say, therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So these seven men, one of them who was Stephen, he's the first martyr of the church. You can read his story in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was killed, guess for what? For preaching the gospel. These seven were chosen and appointed. Now, when I gave you the quote up there, I said the Holy Spirit accomplishes miracles through preaching. Where's the miracle? Well, because of this decision that the apostles had made in the establishment of the deacons, Luke, who's the writer of Acts, the physician, writes in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase. That that, that is because the organization of the church was set in such a way that the apostles could continue preaching. The gospel went forth and people's lives were changed. One of the ways that the powers of darkness dragged down the leadership of the church is getting us involved in a bunch of complaining. I've got a big mouth. You'll probably not silence it. But one of the ways the powers of darkness tries to silence guys like me, Pastor Drew, Pastor Joe, our elders, is by getting us bogged down in the complaining of the church. You know, not only does the gospel go forth, but the text says that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now that's the miracle. You see, the priests, they were an establishment. They had the most to lose. They were Levites that held their office and responsibility for thousands of years. I mean, these folks, because of preaching, were coming to know Jesus Christ you may not understand how powerful that, that that's like getting a notification on your phone or watching the news tonight that Richard Dawkins, the greatest atheist we know today, got baptized. That that, that That's sort of like the Dalai Lama, the leader of Tibetan Buddhism, accepting Jesus Christ in a church somewhere today. That, 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 that's like the, the grand imam in Egypt or the Ayatollah in Iran becoming a Christian. I mean, these things just don't happen and when they do there's great cost what about you what about us we celebrate today as a church the gift of the Holy Spirit and you may say to yourself I don't think I can change the world well you may not change the world but you may change the life of somebody who will change the world And the truth is, it isn't you or me that does the changing anyway. You see, it wasn't Augustine the Great who sent missionaries to Europe that changed the world. It was the Holy Spirit and Augustine that sent the missionaries out that changed the world. It wasn't Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, who opened up the truthfulness of Scripture that changed the world. It was the Holy Spirit through Martin Luther that changed the world. It wasn't Alexander Campbell, the founder of the Christian church movement, who called us back to the universality of the church and the simplicity of the gospel that changed the world. It was the Holy Spirit and Campbell that changed the world. And so the responsibility of the changing of the world isn't upon you or your shoulders. It is what the Holy Spirit in you and the Holy Spirit in this church will naturally do. You see, greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world how will you let the Holy Spirit take over your life this week to make a difference in this world? How will you surrender your heart, your mind, your time, your talent, your treasure, and say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, use me and all that I have for your glory. Father, we pray today that we, your church, might be open to the power and the movement of the Holy Spirit we with boldness will proclaim in word and indeed the good news of Jesus Christ. That we will be a spirit-filled people and a spirit-filled congregation so that your spirit may heal and redeem and sustain. May there be one person this day, O Lord, who in this moment in their heart receive you. And I pray that after the service, they'll meet with an elder up front here. They'll share their conversion, that they might receive that gift of the Spirit. And your church may truly be the church. In Jesus' name, amen.